Welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with Stephanie Burke, Science Advisor Matt Moniz, and the Silent Assassin Matt Costa. And uh, whatever that is, it's still persisting. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder what that is. I don't know either. Well, it's gone now. Yeah, yeah, it went away. I'm sure we're going to get all kinds of tweets. Oh, see, there it goes. I'm cracking again. We're going to get all kinds of tweets and everything from people saying, Oh, I don't know what's happening. <laughs> I think it's because we, we are trying to record the show like 3,000 times over tonight. We yeah, have we're, like, we're trying to cover all our bases. Basically. Right, because we've been having some issues here with the computer uh, with recording. We want to make sure that we get the podcast, so we are insulating ourselves a 1,000 times over. We, we're reco- Basically, like we've got everything except reel-to-reel going to record the show. And That's I, in the next room, you know. Yeah, I was going to say, even that we could probably get going during the next break if need be. But welcome to the program where we talk about the paranormal each and every Saturday night. We'll try and keep fixing these pops and cracks. You know what we'll do is we'll just tell everybody we're on vinyl. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then they won't know the difference. Be like, that's the authentic sound. That's how it's supposed to sound. I don't know what's happening here, but we'll keep trying to figure that out. And uh, tonight we have a special guest joining us for a little bit here at the beginning of the program. And uh, I will let Matt Moniz uh, introduce him because Matt knows about the case. And uh, he has worked on aspects of the case and he's met Joan and knows him personally. So I will allow Moniz to introduce the guest and kind of lead this discussion for us. Well, uh, first off, I haven't actually met John. I know him through okay. doing the case. Um, but in the late December of 1980, on roughly three consecutive nights, a uh, craft or series of crafts came into the Bentwaters area, which was in uh, the eastern part of England. Uh, and during that time, that was when... Um, we were heavy into the the Cold War. Uh, there was lots of uh, trouble brewing in Poland, and uh, we were nose to nose with the Russians, and these bases were on high alert. And when these unknown objects came in, uh, base people were sent out to investigate, and John was one of the first people to go out on one of these forays into the forest to encounter these unknown objects and so now we welcome to the program john burrows good evening john how are you good how are you we're doing pretty well thank you for joining us i know that you only have a brief window of opportunity here but you know we hope to have you back in the future for a full show but we'll try and get uh, as much of the information out there tonight uh, as we can and of course matt moniz will be leading the discussion uh but you're also on with stephanie and another matt and myself okay all right john uh first i want to thank you very much for coming on now, oh, it's a pleasure. Now, uh, I've been involved with this case in a secondary nature, so I'm pretty familiar with most of what had happened. But I was always fascinated with what happened with you and Jim Penniston. Uh, if you would, would you be so kind to explain what brought you out into the Rendlesham Forest that night? Um, yeah, sure. It's ironic that tonight would be is the 34th anniversary. Yeah. It would be the third night of the three-day incident. Um, we were on duty. We came on duty Christmas evening at 11, at about 3 o'clock in the morning on the 26th, which is Boxing Day over the United Kingdom. Um, while on patrol, we were, uh, myself and uh, Sergeant Stephens were checking the back perimeter fence, which is called Eastgate. And when we were heading down there to check it, we saw uh, Sergeant Stephens at first saw some, something strange. We 
later on said that he thought it was coming into the forest and landed into the forest, but it was in, into the forest area itself. Um, we went ahead and went down to get some kind of idea what it was. We didn't like what we were doing with it. We didn't like the feelings of it, and we were we just left that we were off just outside the perimeter of the base itself. Came back in, came back up to the gate, called it in. They sent a security unit down um, after we called it in to check it out. Also, at that point, uh, he Sergeant Pennison saw the strange lights. Also, um, conferred with uh, Central Security Control and our shift commander, Lieutenant Baran. And also at the same time, they were checking different radar sites, and there was confirmation that came in that something had been seen on radar over the area and disappeared. Um, a decision was made possibly that an aircraft that went down into the forest area. So uh, myself, Sergeant Pennison, and his rider departed the base to go into the forest to check out what we might be dealing with. Now, did you contact the sister base next door at Woodbridge as well as any local authorities? Because you're Actually, on a we were on Woodbridge. Um, Bent Waters, it, it was for years called the Bent Waters. Yeah. In actuality, uh, we were on Woodbridge. So we were we were the security and law enforcement on Woodbridge that night, and CSC was out of Bent Waters, and that's who we contacted. So we departed from Woodbridge Base into the forest. Uh, did you also contact local authorities because you were leaving? Yeah, they... While all this was going on, um, the British police were also notified that something was going on. Okay, okay. Now, can you describe what you saw in terms of, you know, the the lights and stuff like that? What made them uneasy to you, uh, as you put it? Well, for us, at first, when Sergeant Steffes and I went up there, when we came down to the end of the road, I jumped out of the vehicle. It just didn't feel right. There was a static electricity in the air. And the lights were moving around, and it was just the idea that I'd been there almost two years and never seen anything like it, and it, it, there was just something out there that couldn't be explained. Um, I, so that's when we called it in. I mean, as far as it was, it went from we saw something and we could identify it or, you know, whatever, to the point of we're seeing something that we just can't really get a handle on what we were dealing with. Okay. Um, now, when you went out with... Uh, Jim Penniston, he obviously got a lot closer, as you explain in your book. And uh, were you able to see Jim the entire time during his experience? No, actually, that's one of the things um, that happened. Um, we w- we went out into the forest, and we eventually got close to whatever it was. Um, uh, Jim has, has described it as a triangular object. He actually touched it. Um, there were glyphs on it and had a binary download. Um, all I remember was getting close to something, hitting the ground. Um, as as we got into the cl- little opening area in the forest, the, it, all of a sudden there was this bright white light. The light got really bright and white, and we hit the ground. And the next thing I remember is it, it dimming and going back up into the forest, up into the sky, I mean, from the forest. All right. Now, was it always just one color, or did it change colors at any point? Well, for me, and, and eventually my statement got released. Um, there was a, it was like an orangish oval, um, you know, uh, the center of it was, and then there was it was like an orangish hue around it. Plus, there was a wider white type of bright light with some blue lights within the, you know, within the white light, and the orangish hue below the the oval orangish ball. Okay, now did you have any uh, sensations 
other sensations like hearing or anything else? Did you, any of your other body senses get tripped by this thing? Well, the only thing I can remember was the static electricity in the air and the feeling that you get when you feel like you're in an unsecure area, kind of like you're in a situation that, you know, gives you the feeling that you're not really secure. I mean, I've only had it happen two or three times in my lifetime, but there was kind of like there was the unknown to the point of just, you know, you didn't feel good right about what you were dealing with, you you know. It just didn't feel right. Your fight or flight senses were starting yeah, to Yeah, that's get, a good way to yeah. put it, yeah. Okay, and usually those are triggered because your senses are trying to tell you you're in danger. There's something there that's... Right, know. right. I mean, I, I say danger. I mean, you can say danger. I mean, that would have been a feeling that you felt. But, I mean, there was nothing that I can remember as I was out there that made me feel like, you know, or us, I should say, felt like we were going to, you know... Um, you know, be attacked by it or whatever, you know, threatened by it, other than when we did get close to it, at one point, Jim in front of me felt like it was more threatening. So, Threatening as in not so much that you're being imminently put in danger because of whatever, but uh, more the feeling of because you're encountering something that you're not familiar with and the uncertainty is what's making you apprehensive. I, that probably the second one was is more along the lines of that. You know, when you're out there dealing with something you've never seen or dealt with before, what you, what it was doing and stuff. Yeah. Well, one of the questions uh, that I had for you, John, is you reported originally that there was uh, some strange noises that you heard, and I wonder if you could kind of describe for us what that sounded like. Well, what what was said was when we were in the forest, you could actually at some point hear the animals themselves even like a screeching deer or something like that, you know, or an animal screeching. And the farmyard animals also got it seemed to be excited. There was a farm in front of us. So the animals were acting up as we were out there in the forest that night. So all the noises that you heard, you can kind of attribute to those animals? Yeah, yeah. Even though they're in a highly agitated state? Well, yeah, I mean, that it just that's what I'm saying. We just, the animals, yeah, seem to be, you know, very, I guess agitated is a good way to put it, or excited, or something was disturbing them, you know, in the middle of the night. So. Now, how far away from the base was this object from where you guys Um were? The perimeter fence line, I got asked the other day again, this is, um, I don't think we were more than a quarter to half a mile into the forest. I mean, I, you know, somebody might correct me that actually knows the forest better than I do, but, you know, it was out, it was, maybe the most a half a mile from the base perimeter to the area in the forest where we were before we went out eventually into the farmer's field and farther out. And we were, so you were not able to really see the base all that well from your position? Is oh, no. From the gate, the way the forest was, as far as once you got down to the end of the road where you had to go left or right, left towards Bentwaters, um, the, there was a forest there, and you, yeah, you couldn't, yeah, no, you couldn't see once you're in the forest back towards the base itself, no. So it would stand to reason you also wouldn't be able to see towards the shoreline either, correct? Right. So would you be able to see the base lights from where you were? Not, not once you got into the forest, no. You yeah. couldn't, you know, you couldn't really see. You know, even from the gate, once you looked out into the forest, you couldn't see, you know, it was, it was a pretty decent-sized forest, you know, that was out there in front of us. Okay, so the likelihood of confusing, say, like a lighthouse would... I knew that was going to come. <laughs> no, what we encountered, you know, you know, especially, 
you know, you go back and you look at it. Where we were in the forest, you couldn't see the lighthouse. Um, and what we saw it do, go up and do all that stuff. Nah, the, it wasn't the lighthouse. I mean, uh, so, yeah. you know, I had that, to that's be, funny, though. But. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is something that's come up from a lot of skeptics on the cases. They always point out the fact that the Orford Nest Lighthouse uh, is nearby. But obviously, being there, you would know the difference. You would know the lighthouse well, that you would yeah, see. Yeah, I mean, frequently. what we saw it do, it could be the lighthouse. And where we were, you could see the light. You could see it from the East Gate either. And, you know, I mean, the thing is, is that, um, that's all they got, if you think about it. That's all they can say that we possibly dealt with. And, I mean, it happened over three nights. Uh, I guarantee you, after the first night, they were all, the people that were out there trying to figure it out, you, you know what I'm saying? It happened over three nights. You, by that time, you'd think by the third night for sure, if it would have been the lighthouse at all, possibly at all, <laughs> they would have figured it out by then. And, you know, and the Colonel Hall's group that was out there, Colonel Hall was actually a combat controller in Vietnam. I think he would be able to distinguish a lighthouse from something that was unidentified flying around. And, and we've played the halt tape here on the show yeah. before in the past, and when you listen to that, you know, you can tell this is somebody who's describing something that is not a lighthouse. And at no point in the tape does it dawn on him like, oh, gee, maybe this is the lighthouse that we see all the time. Right, and I mean, the thing is is that you could say after the fact, well, they were covering it. No, the, when, when the incident took place, it was kept quiet until 1983 before it finally broke out anyway. But the bottom line was is that if when he would have went out there first thing and took a look around, it, it, and it, if he would have felt it was something like that, it would have been over. It would have been identified that was the end of it. He even said early on that he was out there to debunk it and is it unfolded in front of him, including the tape, you could tell, you know, he didn't debunk it. He just went and he just walked into the hornet's nest, you know. And even the part, the one part of the tape that's always stunning that people listen to it is when it comes at him and it beams of light down in their general direction. He says, this is unreal. You just got to listen to his voice, you know. So, you know, it, it, this thing was, it's unexplainable what it is as far as exactly what it is to me still to this day, so... True, and there's one other item about the lighthouse that most people are unaware of. The back portion that faces the land has a big steel plate welded over it so the light doesn't shine inland. Well, right. right. I mean, once you got out to the farmer's field and went towards the coast, you could see a beacon. I mean, I put that in my statement, but yeah, that but isn't what we dealt with. And when I was out there on the third night, you know, also that isn't what I saw. You know, was dealing with it. Neither night was when I was out there. Was it? what well, we weren't dealing with the lighthouse. So that's just the way I put it. So. Now, a lot has been made over recent years about uh, about Jim Penniston's account of actually going out and touching the craft and taking photos of the craft. And there was some contradiction in your original statements, at least when you were talking to some television programs, where you know you were saying that it kind of just took off rather quickly. Uh, what's I mean? It sounds like from what you were saying earlier that you are uh, supporting uh, Jim Pennison's account that he did actually approach the craft. I'm not. I, I, I mean, so if, if you say supporting, I didn't see it happen. I've never said that I saw it happen. Okay. Um, matter of fact, I've always just said over the years exactly what I remember happening. Got close to it. You know, the light got really bright, then it dimmed, and it went up into the sky and moved away. Um, I did not see. What he said happened to him happened. You know, I've never said that. And, you know, to this day, I've never said that. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. Right. You have no reason right. not to believe his account. Yeah, I've known that based on a lot of other factors, I have no reason not to believe it didn't happen. 
I mean, to include some, um, you know, research I've done over the years and um, come across some classified documents that have been declassified explaining why each one of us, when we were affected by it, it could affect us differently in what we saw and what went on. So Sure, and of course, you know, the skeptics, they love to have anything that they can use in their argument, and that's one of the things that they've tried to do is play those accounts against each other, even though you've been very forthcoming in saying, uh, you know, just well, what you just said. Look at it this way. Lawyers do this all the time in court with people that are witnesses to car accidents. Mm-hmm. Everybody sees the accident differently person in the car, the person standing on the sidewalk, the other person that hit the other car. And they'll play those accounts against each other to further their argument. Right. Well, I mean, since we've discussed this, there's something I want to bring up, Professor, and we don't have a lot of time tonight. But there was a a, 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 um, British study that was done, and and what they've done is they've labeled it, they call them UAPs. Actually, they used to call UFOs. Then, you know, down the line, they reclassified it as UAPs to get away from the UFO thing. But it's called Project Condine, and it was done by the British. It was investigated, you know, the actual UFO phenomenon was um, um, investigated, and it was a secret classified document that was declassified and released through Freedom of Information, and a lot of it's still classified, it's still redacted. But within it, um, within this document, I'm going to read you a little passage from it, and, and it mentions Rendlesham in it, and it's one of the only cases that's mentioned within this whole study that was done. It says, buried down, it's buried down on page F4 of the volume 2 in the section about the potential mental effects on humans in this passage. The linking of brain activity to UIP events where the witness is presumably within near Nearer field influence is currently only partially understood since assumptions must be made as to the type of fields being encountered. Within the um, United Kingdom, these close encounters occur only a few times each year. The well-reported Reynoldson Forest Bentwaters event is an example where it's postulated that several observers were probably exposed to UAP radiation for longer than normal UAP sighting periods. There may be other cases that remain unreported. So, there's a, there's a report out there. It's been declassified. It hasn't been covered very much, but it goes into the phenomenon itself, the um, actual um, investigation work. They were looking at it through documents and stuff that they had to, in fact, admitting that what one of the things that they're doing with, with what, they're, what we're dealing with is the fact that they're trying to weaponize whatever it is. And they're trying to pass it off by saying that uh, you might have uh, hallucinated some of what you saw because of what you saw. They're kind of catch-22-ing themselves a little bit there to cover well, the Well, yeah, this is a catch-22 report. You've got to really dig into it to understand it. But what, what, one of the things that you take out of it is, is when you get into the field, the near-infill influence of it, it affects different people differently when they're close to it, mm-hmm. what they've seen, what they remember, and everything else. And it, it even says right in there that, you know, we were exposed to uh, a certain kind of radiation, which is not the type of radiation most people think it is, and actually that radiation is highly classified and is being used in weaponry today within the United States military. And I know that a lot of the witnesses to the Rendlesham case, you know, they they haven't, nobody's really come out and said this was alien craft. I mean, this could have been something that is uh, just some sort of weapon that you had never encountered before, uh, something that was being kept even secret from those working on the base. I mean, in, in your gut, what, what does your gut tell you uh, that you encountered that, that on that stretch well, of three months? Well, I, I always stuck with something that, that, you know, at this point I still haven't been able to 100% prove it yet, but because now of the fact that my medical records are classified, they've altered my um, service record to say I wasn't even when the incident happened. Um, it, to me, 
they were definitely working on something in the area. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of other facilities just outside the perimeter of Woodbridge Bentwaters Base. There's Mar- um, Marconi Company was working with Marlis from Heath, Aria Fauzi. They were working. Um, there were some other facilities there, including an MI, I believe an MI6 facility that was there at the time. And if you know the area, that's where they started working on radar. You know, that's where they did a lot of secret weapons testing and stuff like that. So there's a good chance there was something going on that we were either aware of in the area, and if you go into Condine, they admit that area is an area where they knew something was going on that they hadn't totally identified. As a matter of fact, there was a group of British scientists down there studying that area when our incident happened. So there was something we were probably doing, and who knows if we did something to trigger something coming in, you know, or whatever. But it clearly, to me, involves something probably to do with the military, not at the base itself, but the weapons testing around there, which is special access programs. And who knows what else it was. It very well, they, I mean, this declassified documents, there's a phenomenon. It's undisputable that there is a phenomenon that exists, and it's able to do unbelievable things. So it, based on the documents and everything that I've done, we were dealing with something that we were aware of in the area, and they were either testing it or whatever. There's a lot of possibilities of what was going on. Right, well, just in the final few moments that we have with John, does anybody have any any final questions for him? Uh, I got a couple. Now, I, as you may or may not know, I did the testing for Larry on his uh, soil samples from his night's events. Right. Did anybody do any real testing on the landing soil w- at, at the event that you guys had? That you're aware well, of? From what, if you listen to the hall tape, they were out there doing some stuff. They took some soil samples. They, they had a Geiger counter out there. They were working on some of it. And Colonel Hall just said that they actually took the samples and sent them off for testing. Now, there's never been any confirmation on what the testing came back with, but that there was some st- samples taken from the area. There was a team out there after the incident was working out there, and rumor has it they actually took some samples too. So it's clear, yes, the area was tested, and you know, and there was probably some testing done on it, but we've never been privy to what the results were. Interesting. Now, I'd like, you know, to see that your uh, health is looked after, though, because that is one of the reports I, I'm getting from other people that were involved that they are suffering certain medical medical effects. And well, yeah, no, there's, it's a radiation. It, it, it's something that it's taken years of work for me to do, but there's a radiation, and it's not the type of radiation people think it is. And it, it ties into this phenomenon itself, and it's it's cutting-edge technology that the government's working on right now or in, in use. And that that itself would make this whole incident classified to this day. I mean, why my medical records are classified, why we can't get them, why um, some of my just recent surgery and stuff, some of that stuff is certain doctors can't even look at that. So the radiation itself and the way it's being used is important and, you know, and it more than likely falls under national defense. But, I mean, at the same time, a lot of us were exposed to something and we're not getting the proper care either. And um, that is a shame. I'm sorry. And thank you for your service, sir. Well, thank you. All right. Well, that uh, that about does it for our time with you, John, but hopefully you can come back sometime yeah, in I'd the future. Yeah, I'd love to come back on, you know, and, and give me a couple hours to explain it all, but there's a lot to this I've uncovered over the last, you know, three or four years that makes a lot of sense and is continuing, including the FOIA I've done with the British government, and I don't know if you're aware of it real fast, but I'll, I'll run this down. 
Um, through my FOIA, through all conduct and everything else, I got them to admit they're still eight, holding 18 files that they denied. They, they, they said they released everything, but I, I got them to admit they're holding 18 more files, including six policy files that are yet to be released, and, and they still won't admit when they're going to release them. And some of it still has Rendlesham stuff in it. So. Wow. Well, that could be a, a bombshell to be dropped sometime in the future, and uh, and we certainly look forward to talking to you then where we can find out a little bit more about your research. And, and I really want to get into some of these effects uh, that uh, in the research that you've done with uh, the condine information that you've come across. That's something that we should really focus on because I think that's lost on a lot of people who have, you know, who research these. They don't realize the personal impact that it has on the witnesses that view these craft. Right. I'd love to come back on. I appreciate it, guys. All right. Thank, thank you so you much, much for the Sean. time. Yeah, have a good night. Thanks. You as well. That is John Burroughs, Rendlesham UFO witness, and uh, certainly one of the people that, you know, when you look at high-character individuals, Moniz, we talk about this all the time, yeah. that when you have these reports, when you have UFO sightings, what really matters is when you can get somebody who has character that is almost uh, unquestioned, or at least has observational skills and observational uh, abilities that the common person may not have. Well, he was definitely well-trained, uh, Air Force, uh, security police, and, and he's many years, he knows what he's doing. He's trained to do this, so you can't have pretty much any better observer for an event like that because what's he supposed to do? He's supposed to secure the area around the base. And, and there are people who are, their sole job is just to watch. You're watching the skies. You're not watching for UFOs. You're watching frenemy craft. You're watching for any type of spy craft that might be coming over. And, exactly. and so you know when something's out of the ordinary. You know when something doesn't fit into the patterns of what you're usually looking for. Well, you also got to remember, like I said, at that time, it was a high stress level of the relationship between the former Soviet Union and the United States. This is right when the riots and solidarity were going on in Poland and Russia had literally hundreds of thousands of troops on the border and we had our troops standing ready, you know, loaded for bear, quite literally. And this incursion happens right outside a secure base. And it happens with a base where they're reportedly were nuclear weapons, uh, where there is a reason for our enemies to be interested in what's there. And if I remember correctly, there's nuclear weapons on the base that the British were unaware of and that right. were not supposed to be they were, there. They were in violation of the treaty that they had at that time. There's the other thing that most people weren't aware of. It was also the forward base where the SR-71 flew out of. So there's a lot of reason for there to be interest just in, from in, yeah. from the enemy. Yeah. And 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 even maybe not from the enemy. I mean maybe the British themselves, you know, wanting to kind of get an inside look and and find out that they're being lied to and find out what's going on. I, do you think in the research that you've done uh are we talking about something that was a something that might have been an alien craft? Or are we talking about something that might have been uh, an extraterrestrial craft technology that had been adopted? See, that's interesting because from what I've been able to glean from talking to various people about what they know about physics and other people that know about stuff because they were there, I think it was a mixture of stuff. I think it was um, akin to, you know, 
the first bike ride. Mom and dad out watching somebody taking the first bike ride, so they have... Holding the seat for them uh, yeah. while they start going down the road and then letting go. Yeah. So do you think that there was, you know, this might have been an earthbound mission, but right. that might have had extraterrestrial influence? Yeah, barring technology and somebody watching, okay, this is how you do this, and, you know, small small steps. Like I said, they take the training wheels off for the first time and oh, you fell over on the curb. The only question that I have about that, though, if it is something that happened uh, or originated from this planet, from this dimension, however you want to look at it, but the only question I have about that is of all the places that you want to utilize this technology, there's no place that it would set off more of a red flag than on an Air Force base because these people are going to know that if they see this, that it's something out of the ordinary and it's going to draw more attention. And even the fact that they're just watching the skies anyway, it's going to draw attention. If you wanted to take one of these, unless they felt it was the only thing that they could use to get to gather the information that they wanted to gather, but otherwise it seems like you're taking a big risk taking it out there in front of all these observant eyes. Well, you also have to know where the area is. I've been out there and it's rural Country land. I okay. mean, it, the, the, it's like very sparsely populated in that area. You're, you've got the ocean to one side, so there's not much out there. And then you've got all of these other bases. So th- in a sense, if something happens, yeah, they're lucky it happened outside of a, um, a military base because they can control that information. That inven- information eventually did leak out, but, you know. With all the people that you've talked to involved in the case and all the research that you've done with Peter Robbins, working closely with him and all the research that he's done, and talking to Larry Warren, uh, between the two of you, you know, you've talked to, to Larry Warren, you've talked to Colonel Halt, you've talked to Jim Pennison, you've talked to everybody involved in this case. Is there the possibility? Yeah. Is the poss- does the possibility exist that there were people at that Air Force base that knew 100% what was happening, that it was going to happen, and were involved in what happened, and just these witnesses that we have were just never in the know and were never told and never given that information. I think none of these people were in the know to start with. I think certain people got told limited amount of information after the event happened and were But made were there higher-ups or other people on the base that may have known full well what was going to happen I, and, and what happened? In advance, no. Because uh, that's the reason why we have this information out. If people up top knew, then they would have been able to put the screw on the lid a lot tighter. I think this is something that they, that happened that was unexpected that they had to contain as best they could after, after the event. You know, they always have the, the, the reference to it. They always call it Britain's Roswell. And to me, I think that's almost doing this case an injustice because Roswell was Roswell. Yeah. I mean, what happened happened. Really, essentially, everything that was left over in that case was left in the hands of one person. Roswell was an accident. Roswell was just a tragedy, and we picked up the pieces. Right. The whether, it, whether, whether it was an alien crash, a weather balloon, whatever you right. want to believe that it was, it was a crash that wasn't supposed to happen. One person ended up with the... the Results of that crash, Jesse Marcel taking it home and then eventually having it confiscated. So whatever happened in that case, it was over relatively quickly. And it just became a touchstone for this. And, and it's not only for having a, a crash and having this incident, but having the cover-up 
that ensued afterwards. So I think that it's doing the Rendlesham case an injustice to call it that because it's so much more. And the witnesses that you have are so many more. Yeah. And it, it becomes more of, uh, you know, if you want to look at Roswell as being, it's kind of the story of one man. Whereas this is the story of multiple men and what they have endured over the years and putting themselves, their careers, uh, their few, you know, let's not forget when you're active military, that's one thing. But there's also the, you're setting yourself up for the future by being active military. You're, you're doing that service as a way to help take care of yourself later on in life. And you're putting all of that at risk to come out and, and speak to some of these researchers and be featured in books and featured in documentaries. So there was a lot more to lose for these folks to come out. Oh, yeah. And some of these men have lost it. I'll give you a good example. Larry Warren, mm-hmm. he, he lost all, all kinds of stuff. I mean, his life in terms of paperwork and who he was was essentially <clears throat> redacted. Right. He's, yeah. And he's had to uh, essentially, uh, you know, expatriate himself. Yep. And he has had to, for a while, he was underground. Yep. Uh, and he even attempted to use a pseudonym, if I remember correctly, originally not even use his real name to avoid any kind of blowback. Correct. But instead it came anyway. Yeah. So this is a case that will continue to fascinate us and continue to fascinate ufologists for many years to come. And even as we're very fortunate to have the witnesses that we do in this case, the people who have come forward. Uh, And I know that, Stephanie, you're very skeptical a lot of times of some of these stories. But Mm -hmm. when we talk to some of the, you know, being coming from a military family, you know that when they say something, not only the fact that they're putting their own reputations on the line, but they're putting their own positions on the line as well. Right. They could lose everything. And so they you know, does that make it stand out a little bit more in your mind that they're they're probably at least recounting what they've seen, whether or not what they saw was what they saw. One thing that I, I mean, I come from a Marine Corps family, so that's what I'm used to, but um everything is very literal. There's there's black, there's white, there's no gray at all. So what you see is what you get. Um, what they do say is exact. It's literal. It's to the point. So um, I do agree with that. I, I don't know enough about this case to, to comment either way. I was interested in hearing, obviously, you know, both sides. I, I, I don't know if I'm skeptical. I'm just not alien friendly. Right. I know you kind of <laughs> like, you put the blinders on a little bit when we start talking about these topics. I prefer topics. cats. <laughs> <laughs> but it's one of those cases that uh, as you... As you dig into it and you realize just the, the, the wealth of what it was that they experienced, it's not like what we have now, where right. more of the more modern cases, even if they happen on military, you know, we have pilots that see things, you have astronauts that see things. But what are they seeing? They're seeing things in passing. They're seeing things in the sky. This was an opportunity for military personnel to get up close and personal with a craft either from this earth or not from this earth, but certainly something that we've never seen before. On three separate nights. So, uh, it's, so it wasn't just one isolated incident. It, it, it was recurring with different craft in different locations all on, you know, different nights. And, uh, I also met another witness that, uh, had a sighting, a daylight sighting at the base a month later and was w- well aware of all of the other earlier sightings. So that area was active for a good amount of time. And there was another sighting outside the base a year before. Now, just out of curiosity, since I still don't know much, but how do you know if somebody is 
aware of exactly what happened in the cases and then claim to have a sighting, how do you know it's just not a copycat? Because he had other people with him. Okay, but how do you know it's not collectively a copycat sighting? How do you know they didn't just come forward and say, oh, I saw this? How do you differentiate between an actual sighting and somebody that's just looking for to have a conversation? I think with these witnesses, they all came forth at the same time. Uh, Yeah. uh, The other individual, uh, he's still active in terms of Mm -hmm. being security and stuff like that, so I don't want to get involved with naming him. But uh, you don't have to. I was just, I didn't even, not specifically who it was. I was just curious because you said it. The time had passed, and they had a daytime sighting. So, Correct. how did you know the difference? Between These are again by security officers posted mm-hmm. at a gate, watching this large c- cigar-shaped object pass over East Gate, mm-hmm. where everybody left. And it is same kind of strange object witnessed by the guards there, mm-hmm. and then they, you know. Also, had heard the other stuff from the other people before, but they kept their story a little bit more quiet, only for the s- simple fact they saw what was happening to the other people. Right, and so it w- they weren't looking for attention. Yeah, they, they didn't come out with this. Uh, if I remember all the facts right, they didn't come out with this. What happened was uh, Colonel Halt wrote a memo to the higher ups mm-hmm. where he described what happened, and then through Freedom of Information Act, somebody got a hold of that memo. And then they got all the witness names from there, Correct. tracked them down. It had been three years after the original sighting. So by that point, some of these uh, airmen were no longer active. And so they were able to, to speak a little bit about it. And then it was e- Easton, was it? Let me see. It might be on here. Um, yep. Let me just look real quickly uh, here. It was, uh, yes, British researcher James Easton, who really started jumping into yep. this. And then, of course, Dot Street and... Um uh, Butler and, and then, Regina Bruni and, of and course, Peter. Peter writing Brett. the definitive yeah. book on the case as well. So uh, this is one of those – I've always felt like this has a little bit more – I don't want to say more legitimacy, mm-hmm. but at least it pulls in my interest a little bit more because it wasn't something where people were, at least not to the public, coming out about this sighting. They were certainly talking about it amongst themselves, obviously, with Colonel Halt putting out the memo. But it was uh, it was something that I don't think was ever intended to get out to the public, right. which – I can only assume that, uh, you know, had this memo never really been released to the public, we might not ever have known because it's, it is a remote area. Yeah. So it wasn't like there was a bunch of people out in the town that were clamoring to find out more about what went on. Like, you know, if we have something here that goes on, uh, here on the south coast of Massachusetts, everybody immediately starts contacting, you know, Otis. They start immediately contacting the New Bedford Airport, the Plymouth Airport. Mm-hmm. So we have all these different sources, resources that we can go to. So we know when something happens that there's public interest and public outcry to find out what happened. Out there in the middle of nowhere, you know, the cows don't ask that many questions. Yeah. They uh, should, though. They, yeah. Well, if they did, <laughs> then we'd really know what was going Bear on. Bear in mind, like I said, this is also the period right around now, in Christmas. Was everybody doing in the middle of the night? They're, they're in their homes dealing with family and friends. Mm-hmm. and you They're know. not really outside looking at the sky. Right. They're, and these events happened in, in the evening towards the later part of the evening. So chances of anybody being out there to see it to start with are slim. And there was only a handful of the farmers in the area that saw stuff too, although they were, you know, spoken to 
uh, as they put it in terms of being witnesses and they were fairly reluctant to talk about it afterwards. And, and John mentioning the fact that the animals were riled up yep. by something. It mean, you know, there, something happened. And I think we all have to pretty much accept that based on the testimony given and the reports that were given. And, and Stephanie, I will hook you up with the past episode of our show where we went really in depth and we played the actual, we played the entire 20 minute mm-hmm. halt tape, uh, so that you can hear everything that he's describing as he's seeing it. But, I think that when you take all that into account, you have to accept the fact that something unusual landed there that night. Something unusual was in the vicinity there, was seen by numerous people. Now, we can debate all day long about what it was, but something happened. And even it it even goes beyond the point where you can even think of it as a a mass hallucination because it's something even more so than that because it's you're dealing with people, first of all, who probably aren't prone to mass hallucination Mm -hmm. and uh, or at least would be hyper aware of that possibility uh, but also just the the fact that when you hear Pennison's account and just the tactile nature of what it is you remember Moni's how he described the actual yeah, surface fe- of the feeling like glass warm glass and stuff like that so I'm sure something absolutely happened and I think anybody out there is silly to believe that we're the only intelligent life that's out there first of all and second I think our military is far I'm more advanced I'm still concerned that we have intelligent life here yeah, I don't think we're the most intelligent thing yeah. on our planet, let but alone on others. people really believe that, that, that this is it. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that that's the case. And I think our military is far advanced, you know, compared to what we actually know goes on. I think a lot of what goes on we're blinded from. But um, personally, what do you feel this was, Moniz? Um, I think it's a conglomeration of things. I think that there was, like I said, we were trying to play with technology that is basically constructed elsewhere. So you use the analogy of the bicycle. I wonder if yeah. it's almost more like, you know, we borrowed the keys to dad's car. and You know, and we, yeah. maybe we shouldn't have been driving it. Well, and having done the soil analysis, uh, you know, what did you find in the soil from, from at least Larry Warren's experience? Well, from... The soil that where Larry said the thing landed, and it's not just him. There's several other witnesses that came forward that all said the same thing, that it, it, it was there. So when uh, I was able to check the soil, there was definitely a, a marked change in the affected area or the landed area. One of the first things being that the soil, even 10 years later when I tested it, was still almost sterile, microbially sterile. Now, that's pretty unusual. And there's a great relationship between the microflora and fauna that lives in soil and when you're using it as a um, a field to grow things in, okay? There was a, a definite discoloration difference. There was um, a high degree of changing from from silica to a silicate which basically is happening under high heat and pressure sure okay that's when sand is being turned into a type of glass a vitrification of glass and what was interesting is there was also a high degree of an, a compound called feo which is ferric oxide now you normally know feo2 which is basic rust but feo is a uh, comes from a high reduction atmosphere. Uh, it's basically like a meteorite dust, which naturally blankets the planet. You know, find you know, uh, 
material. Now, what had happened was there was a high degree of this in this glass-like substance, which turned the soil into like little round globules, like semi-glass globules. And the iron FeO inside it was four times the normal limit around the rest of the soil that we tested. So the only thing that would cause that would be a high degree of heat and electromagnetism to bring all of that FeO into one area. Could it have been... A lightning strike? No. I was going to ask, could it have been petrified lightning? No. Could it have been that maybe that was what had landed there? Maybe there had been some sort of meteorite that had landed there? No. Because there would have been more, it would have been more widespread. Right. Uh, the, if you take a look at uh, some of the pictures from left at Eastgate, you can see that it's an affected area that's roughly about 20 to 25 feet in diameter. And I tested the soil from the top down to about a foot, foot in depth. And it affected, you know, definitely within a foot. And this is years later. And uh, some of it may have been a little thinned out from years of plowing and and what have you, but it, it, it's it's still roughly there. Since then, it's been covered over and removed, so I've been told. But you um, actually still have some of the soil. I have very little bit of it left, but uh, Peter Robbins still has some. Now, what's interesting about the soil is it, it became what's known as hydrophobic. In other words, you would take water and you put it on it and it would roll off as opposed to control soil, you know, 100 feet out. You put water on it, you got mud. Mm-hmm. You know, so this thing would that also explains why there would be less microbes and nematodes in it because without the water you don't have the life, and that's why plants would also grow strangely in it. Very interesting stuff. And if you want to check out the book, it is called Left at Eastgate. It's by Peter Robbins. Uh, Matt Moniz's soil analysis is included in the book, as well as all the testimony of the witnesses. It's probably the go-to uh, volume to, to learn more about it. But there's also a number of uh, television documentaries that you can watch online as well if you want to find out more. And, of course, we've done numerous episodes on on the past in the past here on Spooky South Coast. I also recommend going way back into the archives. And you might have to go to the... SpookySouthCoast.com because the iTunes archives don't go all the way back. So you might have to go to SpookySouthCoast.com and go to the previous archives that you'll see there in the slideshow, and you'll be able to go back and listen to the episode where we did play the entire halt tape in its entirety, and we really got in-depth on the case with Peter Robbins, and he's somebody who is the go-to source for this information, but what I like about it is that when normally when you hear on some of these other radio shows, it's more than one of these witnesses all coming together and they're all still sharing these stories together so it's not like you're ever getting just one perspective uh, when you're dealing with this case so definitely check that out check out I know Jimmy Church on Fade to Black just covered this last week uh, for the anniversary so you can check out his show as well he had a number of people including I believe he had Peter and he, he had John Burroughs on so uh, definitely worth a listen while we're on this subject and uh, in the next hour we're going to do what we call our paranormal year in review it's become kind of an annual tradition here on Spooky South Coast. And we're going to talk about some of the top paranormal stories in 2014. And we're going to take your calls on them as well at 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. I haven't shown the list, the entire list, to the Spooky crew here. So we're going to get kind of their, some of their raw reaction to some of these stories. And, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. Uh, but one of the stories that we talked about this morning uh, here on my morning show was a story that came out today uh, that Greg shared with us during the news 
that, and this kind of goes along the same lines of, you know, what, what can you believe? And this story suggests that people who believe in a religion, people who have a religious belief, are twice as happy as people that don't. People who believe in that higher power are twice as happy as those who do not believe in a god or believe or, or, or participate in an organized religion. And it made me think about UFO experiences. You know, we want to think that there's something more to this life here on earth. And so we look to God, we look to heaven, we look to the afterlife as a comfort in that regard. But we look to their idea of maybe there's something more than us in the universe. And instead of it being a comforting thing, it's, it's for a lot of people, it's more of a terrifying thing. So I find that really interesting how there's that dichotomy between we don't want to be alone, but we want it to be what we want it to be. You know what I mean? Like we, we, we don't want to be the only people in the universe. We want to think that there's something more, but we don't want to think that there's something more is the scaly green guys who are coming down and abducting us. I think it's the, the actual physical difference of what you're looking at. I mean, you think, oh, other side, it's it's humans, it's my loved ones, mm-hmm. it's something that looks normal or so what we think, but then you think about little green men that are going to come and steal you in the middle of the night, and that's a little frightening. Well, I think that part of my... They're not green. <laughs> Some of them are. Gray. Some of them are. The reptilians but are. The cartoons depict that to small children as these little green men come and steal you in the middle of the night. That's terrifying. The... What, what I, when I heard this report, and I, I didn't want to get into it too much with the morning audience because, you know, I think that we're a little bit more sophisticated here in Spooky South. I don't want to say sophisticated, but we're a little bit more skeptical, say, about religion. And one of the first thoughts that I had was, well, sure, if you're happier because you believe in a higher power, because, you know, ignorance is bliss. If mm-hmm. you can turn over your life to something else and not take personal responsibility for your actions and, and feel like everything is a divine plan or that everything will work out in the end as long as you're a good person, then it's easier to live that happier life. It's easier to put all that stuff th- than to hold that accountability. I don't know how you guys feel about that if you think that that's I – I, I personally think it's a little cold of me to feel that way, but that's just how I've always felt. I know a lot of miserable people that go to church weekly. (laughs) (laughs) And I've always said that the worst people ever really go to church every single week. Really? Yeah. You've never noticed that? Well, I think Trying to make up for what they know is... No, I think it's just like a big facade. Like, oh, look at me. I go to church every week. But they go and they do horrible things to people all week long. So, or maybe they just repent every Sunday. Who knows? But I don't... I don't know. I've always just felt if you do something, you know, if you do good deeds and you're a good person and it is what it is in the end, you know. Well, we've certainly seen the result of too much religious fervor. Yes. And how that can be a negative. I mean, that's had a direct impact on a lot of what we talk about here. You know, a lot of these paranormal topics that we discuss, there are people out there and we, we get the phone calls, we get the emails, we get people who say, you know, you really shouldn't be talking about that. That's an affront to God. But what if it's not? What if it's just another way of God showing that he's here or she. This could be a very deep conversation and very, this could take five hours. Well, it certainly could. And it, and you it's, ever hear don't discuss religion or politics? Right, but this is talk radio. <laughs> if we don't discuss those two <laughs> things, what are we going to talk about? You know, we're not sports. a sports station. We're going to so, yeah. get hate calls pretty soon. Well, see, that's the great thing about the spooky South Coast time slot is we can talk about these topics and not get the hate mail. Right. You know, because people kind of know. They know where this discussion Until might go. Until it goes they, into podcast. Right. Well, no, even the po- the podcast audience is is just as you know sarcastic and just as snarky about things as we are. So we love them for that. 
But the danger is always when you're talking to a more broader audience. You know, chances are people are downloading the podcast. They're probably of a similar mindset to us. But when you're broadcasting out to the general public, that's when you get a lot of that uh, that backlash. And I've never once said that religious belief is bad, and I've never once said that religious belief is wrong. I've just said that we have to look at it the same way we would anything else. I, I don't want to come here and preach to you that ghosts are real and have you accept that 100%. I want to explain to you why I feel that it is. And I always have wanted that same type of response right, from those who believe challenges. in God, and, and I don't get it. I just get, well, you have to believe because you know this. See, I'm a very inquisitive person. I just like to question everything, and I'll flat out say I believe in God. I was brought up Catholic, and I believe in the other side and everything else, but... You know, you have to consider things that you learn, you know, in history or religion, and then, you know, what we're taught and what the actual truth may be. There's a different side to everything. There's there's one side, second side, and the truth, and you never know what's going to happen. I mean, I, I think about it all the time. Do I have connection with the other side? Yes, I do. But you have a lot of things that have happened that haven't really happened, if that makes sense, without offending anybody. Um, the Bible was written by man. It wasn't written by God. And it, and I, I made this point this morning, but I'll reiterate it here. I've never felt that the Bible is uh, a, histor- a history book. Right. It's more of a philosophy book. Right. I, I agree with that. So it's not about hardcore actual data as it's much as philosophy it is. in history context. Right. It, it's it's basically using well, the history to, to, to give a moral moral lesson. That it's a it's a history. Well, the places that they talk about do exist. Yes, they do, but. It's all, if you think about it, based on opinion. And what you take from it is your own opinion. And the molding of said opinion. Right. It's, I, I laugh all the time when people post, you know, different scriptures and things like that. I hate to hold it there. Uh-oh. But we're out of time. See, this is what happens when you bring up, you know, religion with seven minutes to go in the hour. We, but we do have, you. It is my fault. We do have to take a break for the news. When we come back on the other side, we can talk more about this and we can get into the top paranormal stories of 2014. So stay tuned for more Spooky South Coast on the new report. Spooky South Coast. That might actually be a problem with the file, I think. Uh, even though Matt Costa kind of troubleshot some of the problems we were having uh, during the break, I think that might be the literal file that we transferred over. So, what do you think? Possibility? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I might have to re-upload it. I think it might have been, maybe it was like, maybe it's because it's peeking out already in the recording. Maybe. I don't know. I know they were having trouble with uh, some audio files with our program that we use, so... Technical talk on the air. Nobody cares. Moving on. Moving on. <laughs> of course, this is our two of Spooky South Coast, where we talk about the paranormal each and every Saturday night. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa, science advisor Matt Moniz, and Stephanie Burke. We all have Twitter accounts now. You can follow us all on Twitter. Of course, the show can be found at Spooky SC. You can find me at Tim Weisberg. Stephanie at sburke 910 Yes. Matt Moniz at... At Matt Moniz, SSC. And we're working on getting... He should be tweeting by the end of the week. We'll, we'll get him tweeting. Still got technical difficulties with we're, the phone. But we'll we'll have you all up and ready to go. We'll get you doing it. Because you can do it on the computer. It's easy, even easier to do it on the computer. And, uh, and of course, Matt Costa at Smoking Monkeys. M-O-N-K-E-E-Z. So he doesn't get sued by either the band yeah, right. or the animals. 
<laughs> exactly. And uh, animals you, have good lawyers. They do. Yeah, well, you know, you know, the monkeys are represented by Clarence Darrow, so you know, you, <laughs> you can't uh, you can't lose against him. I mean, geez, he sued God in one. <laughs> Speaking of lawsuits, I'm sure that's one of the many topics that we will discuss now as we go into our paranormal year in review. It's all the all the paranormal stories of 2014 that caused a stir, and if we forget any. I'm sure that the crew here can remind me if there's any that aren't on my master list here. And also, you can call in. You can call in to discuss your thoughts on some of these stories. You can call in to let us know some stories we may have missed. The numbers are 508-996-0500, They are both listed right on SpookySouthCoast.com. And if you're watching on Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com or via the Ustream app, you will see the numbers down on the bottom of the screen. I don't know if I'm pointing correctly, but we'll have the numbers at the bottom of the screen for you to call in and share your thoughts. You can also tweet us as well using the hashtag SpookyLive, which anytime the show is on the air, you want to join in the conversation on Spooky TV, just use the hashtag SpookyLive on Twitter. Matt, I didn't tell you. Didn't tell you about the meeting that I had. Well, part of the, the meeting that I had with the powers that be here at WBSM, the new 1420 WBSM, really? I talked to them about we have to get flash-based chat available again yeah. on these computers. We should. We should. Because I don't know if you've people, noticed... People were clamoring for... Uh, right. The Zat chat. chat. Yeah. They loved it. And and the conversation is down since we made the switch to the Twitter. Hmm. We're not getting as many people participating on Twitter using the hashtag SpookyLive. We'll and it's start, sad. Uh, twatting or twitting. I'm very sad. I'm very upset by the fact that there are... So many people that follow the show and us personally on Twitter, and they're not involved in the Saturday night discussion. And we did ask last week for people to tweet us or email us and let us know where they're from and how they listen and how long they've been listening and all that, and I got one response. So thank you to the person that sent that <laughs> one response. But the rest of you, let us know, because we're about to enter, enter our 10th year. We'll be celebrating our 9th anniversary next year, next year. Literally next year, but yes. actually next month, uh, at the end of January. And as we enter our 10th year, we have some new and different ideas for how we want to take the show. And I think we can kind of let the cat out of the bag a little bit now. And, well, should we wait till next week? What do you want to do? Should we let the people know now what our plan is, or should we make them hang on another week? You can give a teaser, at least. Because we're not going to put this plan into effect until after our anniversary. Okay. So it's not until February, really, where the new plan will kick in. But I've heard a lot of people say over the years, especially over this year, because we've added Stephanie to the program, a lot of people say that, you know, maybe I don't always give people the opportunity to talk, and maybe I'm dominating the discussion a bit too much. But that's not the case. The microphones here are always open. Yes, they are. Anybody can say anything anytime they want. But maybe it's just the way that I lead discussions. Maybe I just kind of... Make people feel like they can't jump in. So the big announcement is we're firing Tim Meisberg. That is it. So in 2015, I will just sit here and press buttons. I will only be the producer, and I will no longer be talent <laughs> on the program. So Just kidding. The But what we really are planning is, you know, there needs to be more of a voice of everybody involved in the show, because you might not always hear it over the broadcast, but these guys are all a big part of what we do, and they... 
there's constant discussion going on all week long about different topics and different ideas and different concepts. And there's things that, you know, if I look things up or hear about a guest, I will go to Moniz and ask him what he knows, or I will throw it off Matt Costa and say, what do you think about this? And Stephanie and I I are always talking about different things that we should be discussing that we're not discussing uh, because she's able to kind of bring in a fresh perspective of things. And one thing that we never wanted to do was we never wanted to become stagnant. And I felt like around this time last year, we had become stagnant. And I felt like we needed a kick in the pants. And we got through the first couple of months of 2014, uh, and I was already thinking in my mind, like, we should involve Stephanie. She does a great job on spirit connections, and she only lives down the street. And it's probably better to get her more involved in this end where you can talk about a variety of different topics where, you know, you can really play to all of your strengths. And I was already coming up with the idea of maybe bringing you involved and then I had you fill in for me one week right? and you did such a great job I said okay now we can just make I, it official I wouldn't say great job but you did a Costa great job and I survived <laughs> and so that I think kind of reinvigorated things mm-hmm. and one of the things that I want to do to avoid becoming stagnant is I want to keep constantly evolving in what it is that we do and too much of the time we come in here and we don't have a guest planned mm-hmm. or a guest falls through because it's Saturday night. Guests can fall through all the time on a Saturday night. It's easy for some of these other programs to have guests on a Wednesday at 6 p.m. You or mean that people have lives on Saturday nights? Some people do. Wow. I know. I know it's weird. We, we, we thought doing this program that we were, you know, Saturday nights would be a great time to talk to people interested in the paranormal. We forgot that most of the people that are interested in the paranormal are out experiencing the paranormal right. on Saturday <laughs> nights. But, but uh, one of the things we wanted to do was, was have more consistency in in booking and having more guests on the program because nobody wants to hear us talk all the time i think it's okay once in a while but nobody really wants to hear us talking for two hours maybe i'm wrong and you can let us know if i'm wrong but i i don't want to hear us talk i think those people are called masochists yeah maybe uh what's even worse is they put us on with noise canceling headphones of where all they can hear Uh, but i think that you know the this show is at its best when we're just exploring different topics as the avatar for the audience. Mm-hmm. I always say that that's what we are. We're just the monkeys that push the buttons, and we're really just the conduit for the audience to hear what the guests have to say. So in that regard, I always want to involve other people in the show. I always want to have guests come on the program, and I don't like it when we come in here and we don't have a guest because we fumble through things and we, we stretch, and it just doesn't it doesn't pop as much as when we have an actual topic to discuss. So with that in mind... I came up with the idea in wanting to always have a guest and wanting to have more of the rest of the Spooky crew having a voice in the program that starting in February, once we enter our 10th year, we're going to have weeks. We're going to have Stephanie week. We're going to have Moniz week. We're going to have Silent Assassin week. We'll have Tim week. And each each month, we'll each have a week. And if there happens to be a, an extra week that month, we'll figure it out. But... Each person is going to book a guest for that week. And it'll be a topic that they want to explore, that they want to discuss, a guest that they want to speak to. And by doing that, and also they're going to lead the discussion. Just as Moniz led the discussion tonight with John Burroughs, uh, that being more because of his encyclopedic knowledge of the, the Bentwaters case more than anything else. But, you know, as we go forward with this booking plan, this person, whoever whoever's week it may be, they're going to take the lead. 
and they're going to take the reins. And don't worry, guys, I'll still do the ins and out of commercials and all that kind of stuff. But in terms of the interview itself, I'm going to leave it up to you guys. And we've talked off the air mm-hmm. about you know making sure that that person who books the guest is going to make sure that the rest of us are as fully prepared as we can be. Because too often right now, you know, sometimes in the the hustle and bustle of what goes on. We'll book a guest at 4 o'clock Saturday afternoon, and then you guys come in. You don't know who's going to be on the show, and you don't really have any way to prepare, and you're scrambling to try to look things up and and come up with questions during the course of the show. And I do like that spontaneity of having a conversation rather than an interview, but at the same time, you want to be armed with some knowledge going into it. Yeah, some sort of structure. So by doing this this way, I think it'll make the program a lot more lively. It'll give us the opportunity to bring on a lot of different guests that you haven't heard in the past, either here on this show or maybe even on any show. And you're gonna make us you're gonna make us talk about things that we might not want to talk about, but that the audience wants to hear about. Things that I wouldn't even think about. Stephanie, you know people that are involved in things that I don't even pay a second mind to. Right. But it doesn't mean it wouldn't be a fascinating discussion for the audience and that I wouldn't learn something in the process. It's very true. Moniz, you have tons of guests that when you possibilities for guests that when you tell me about them, I think to myself, I don't know anything about that. But I will know about it when you bring them on and you educate me as well as the audience. Matt Costa, I don't know what the hell goes on in your mind. <laughs> but if you, I'm, I'm assuming that your first guest will be, you know, like a Playboy Playmate. Hopefully. Your second guest will be probably like a talking girl. Oh, get out of my head. <laughs> no, but seriously, you've always done a great job of, of coming up with, uh, in, and I, I say that in jest because Matt has always done a great job of coming up with guests and coming at me with, hey, did you hear about this guy? And he always seems to find the things that, you know, when we say that we're breaking stories here that other radio shows don't talk about, a lot of the times Matt's the one finding some of that stuff. So uh, we should have a, a pretty good plan of how to do this. That's why we're not instituting it until we start the 10th year, because it gives us a month to work out all the tweaks. I totally think that we should call Matt Costa's week Breaking the Silence. <laughs> he stopped being silent a long time ago, uh, but uh, now he's magic. Then gonna, I don't know if you know that, but no. now he's magic. Oh, wait, I, I did hear that, but you can't call him a silent assassin anymore if you're going to give him a whole entire you know show to himself. Well, he, he well, but even then, you know... It, when, when, I say, when I say somebody's going to lead the discussion, it's not like the rest of us are going to sit here. I know. And not I'm say just anything. teasing because he is a silent assassin. But it, I think this plan will work, and hopefully uh, when people are reaching out to us to become guests, they'll, they'll learn, like, okay, I think like I could really work well with Stephanie on this, and, and she gets what I'm all about, mm-hmm. so I'm going to contact her. And, of course, Spooky Crew at SpookySouthCoast.com is always a way to get a hold of all of us at the same time. Uh, but, you know, we'll develop some relationships with these guests and, and kind right. of be able to get a little bit more in-depth because I don't have the time every week to, you know, I've never done pre-interviews because I just don't have the time, and no. I don't like to. And if anybody even knew what your real life was like, <laughs> then... They would completely question how you even do the morning show, never mind this show. But you, Stephanie, you might want to do a pre-interview with a guest. Right. You might want to talk to them for an hour or two beforehand to get a feel for who they are and, and the subjects that yep. you can talk about. It's all in how it's all in our own different styles, and I think that that will start to come through a little bit more uh, in 2015. So looking forward to that, looking forward to taking all of you on that ride with us. Of course, any questions, comments, complaints, anything that you want to let us know, you can always do that, Spooky Crew at SpookySouthCoast.com. Even if you just want to email us and bitch about the show, we're fine with that. We can say that on there. Oh, we're, we're, part of that meeting I had, we can have a little bit more edge. Uh, oh, okay. A little bit more. All right, you'll have to clue me in afterwards. I'll keep my finger here on the dump button just in okay, case. Good. But I think we can have a little <laughs> bit more, a little bit more edge. And in, in, 
we're we're kind of having some of the restraints pulled off of us a bit too. That's good. Because you, you know, in talk radio, you can only go as so far as management will allow you to go, mm-hmm. and so we're going to be allowed to go a little bit further now that we are the new fourteen twenty WBSM. We're trying to be a little bit more. Uh, you know, we're not going to be so reserved in our questioning anymore. A little and we, edgy. We get to carry that over into Spooky South Coast. Cool. So we'll always still be respectful. That will never change. But at least now, you know, we, we've always said we want to ask the questions that the audience wants to know the answer to. And now I think that we can really do that. And uh, so, again, 2015, looking forward to it. It'll be our 10th year. Oh, my God. Never thought we would have made it this far. Really, in all honesty, I thought you guys probably would have gotten lives in this time <laughs> and been like, I'm too busy on Saturday nights now to go do a stupid radio show. We're all in the paranormal. Hello? I know. Think about how many missed opportunities we've had to go to different things on Saturday night, how many concerts we've missed and parties that we've missed on Saturday nights and all that stuff. And we do it all for you, the Spooky South Coast audience. Uh, I think we have a call on the line, so let's take that. Good evening. You're on WBSM Spooky South Coast. How are you? Oh, how are you doing tonight? Doing well. Okay, long-time listener. Thank you. I'd like to support the program anyway. I do enjoy it. Look forward to it on Saturday. I was just wondering what your your thoughts are on the uh, when I mentioned uh, the the dark side of the moon. Um, Great album. Yeah. Other than that, <laughs> as, as far as um, what are your thoughts when I, when I mentioned that? In terms of the. Uh, the physical other side of the moon. Yes. Did you did you ever hear anything about any uh, anything to the fact of a civilization uh, living on that on that side of the moon? Yes, you did. Yes. Yeah. Well, it, there it, there are certain uh, lunar bases that are said to exist there, and there are certainly signs, or there are people who believe that there are signs of that civilization that we see even the parts of the moon that we can see. People are always looking at it and saying, okay, look at, you know, you can see here, here's where there might have been some sort of uh, colonization, here's where this might have happened. And we do the same thing with Mars as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm just curious because I, I wanted, I've, I've been hearing certain things, it's just a roundabout conversation with certain people, and, and I, it, it kind of uh, freaked me out one day when I, I mentioned it to a, a perfect stranger. I was out at a, at a club one night or something, and, and and I mentioned that, and 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 that person said to me, "I, I heard there's uh, uh, they're dying off." <laughs> so I I found that kind of strange, you know. Well, then I'll ask you this: Then how do you feel about the stories that are out there that the moon landing actually happened in a television studio, and that we've never actually landed on the moon? I agree, one hundred percent. Really? Yep. yep. So you think that there's never been any mission that has successfully landed on the moon? Um. As as far as what what the uh, with ho- Hollywood depicted, um, yes. But as far as uh, uh, I, I think that was pretty much uh, small time. What were the actual missions were um, a, lo- a lot more advanced than that particular mission would be. So. Um, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. See, I thought that they don't have to be mutually exclu- exclusive. We could have landed on the moon, but they could have also faked the moon landing itself on a soundstage because it's a lot easier to control what you're broadcasting right. from a soundstage than it is from the base of the moon. Right. But the astronauts involved have all said that that's not the case at all. It's 100% legitimate. So, mm-hmm. you know, let's take them at their word, I guess. I guess. Okay, very good. Have, right. a, have a good uh, evening, and uh, I'll, I'll be checking in again. Thank you, and Happy New Year. All right, you too. 
what's interesting about what he brought up is uh, there was something that somebody else told me years ago about, you know, the moon landing in the, the faked supposedly uh, video is that the missions did actually occur, but they happened earlier in the year, and the actual launch happened out of West Coast, some island, uh, whatever, and they landed there, and the part of what you see is soundstage, and part of what you see is actual lunar event. Footage that was recorded recorded. and then brought And and in other words, these men really did go there, and what you hear and see is something that was partially staged and partially uh, a blend. Now, nobody can prove that this is true or not, but when you're dealing with, um, you know. Well, why the, would they do that? Is that because they security. didn't have footage of the No, well, th- what they would have it would be some actual footage that, that you can show that, you know, you collected this rock in here, and we know that we can test this rock and say that, yeah, it's definitely from the moon, and you're seeing stuff like that that is legitimate, but they said, this guy was telling me that, they went out and surveyed other things that were out there that supposedly uh, of ancient ancient uh, technologies. Yeah, what happens if you broadcast live from the moon, you land on the surface of the moon, and then all of a sudden, bam, right in front of you when you land there is a freaking alien. Or you know, it's, it's, not exa- yeah. it's not exactly a situation that you can control. And also, one of the things that I was always interested in is they were never really concerned about any kind of sabotage for the moon landing, at least not publicly. I'm sure privately there was a lot of concern about that, but, geez, you would have thought if you were ever going to get attacked by the enemy, that would have been the time because of what was on the line to be the first on the moon. But it's certainly something we can explore. Uh, I want to have the the bad astronomer come on in 2015. That's one of my guests that I'm booking. Uh, So we'll, we'll talk with him hopefully coming up in 2015. But right now, let's take a look back at the year in review. Uh, some of the top paranormal stories of 2014, and what a year it was. <laughs> There's been a lot of things that have happened in 2014, so we'll talk about some of these top paranormal stories, and we'll get everybody's take here in the studio. Some of them will just be real quick little mentions, and we'll move on. Some of them will be some in-depth discussions, and you can join in at 508 996 1420. They're not going to go in any kind of order. They're not going to go in any chronological order or order of importance. Just kind of wrote some notes down. And I put out on Twitter and Facebook, I asked people for some of their suggestions. So a lot of these come from uh, those suggestions as being the top paranormal stories of 2014. But we'll start with this one. Amy Bruni and Adam Berry leave Ghost Hunters. They decide that, you know, they're done with that lifestyle for right now and they they have other projects that they want to get involved in and other things they want to do and a lot of people couldn't understand why uh, people would want to walk away from the number one show on sci-fi the number one show in the paranormal genre and one of the top shows on cable why would you suddenly decide that you know this isn't for you anymore and we've had the opportunity to talk to amy and adam privately about it and you know we know all the factors that went into this but I think a lot of folks out there don't understand TV isn't the end-all, be-all for people that are involved in this field. Not everybody wants to be on a television show. Amen. I, I mean, don't think it's the be-all, end-all for anybody in reality television, not just the paranormal. Right. And, well, I mean, Stephanie, you, you've had the opportunity to talk to Amy, and you know, you've uh, talked to plenty of other people that have been involved in these shows. Mm-hmm. For people who are involved in the research, sometimes the show gets in the way. Yeah, it does. And I think in Amy's case, too, especially, um, I mean, she has a family. Mm-hmm. 
and she has a daughter and just going through that myself, I wouldn't want to pick up and travel constantly. You know, five out of the seven days a week, you're, you're in a car, you're on a plane, you're going here, you're going there, then you're staying up late nights and it's time away that she's missing out on. So I don't blame her for doing what she's done. And, uh, and Adam having a lot of projects that he's involved here at home. You know, he didn't, he couldn't be away from them for that right. amount of time. And at least now with Amy going into Strange Escapes, her new venture, right. uh, she's able to decide when she wants to bring her daughter with her. Right. So if she feels like the situation is right, they can stay together. And if not, she's only gone for a couple of days as opposed to being gone for a couple of weeks. Yeah, that's really difficult. I think she made a good decision. But again, people can't understand why people would make that choice. And it really all comes down to, to personal preference. I mean, you can get burnt out with that kind of travel and that kind of lifestyle. I mean, I know that Moniz, you've been traveling around for your day job uh, as part of some of the things that you're doing for that. And, and you can probably see, as much as you're enjoying it, but you can probably see how it'll get old quickly. Uh, it gets old very quickly. Yeah, I mean, living out of a hotel room you know, for a couple of weeks. Yeah, you know, The first week it's kind of okay, but after you do the second week and then you leave and go back out again and you keep going back, yeah, it it wears on you. It and also, on you. if you are serious about the research and about you know getting more in-depth into the paranormal, at some point you probably feel like you're plateauing having to do it in front of the cameras because you have to work within the confines of them filming a television show. And I know the idea is that television is not going to infringe upon the investigation, but at the same time, the investigation is kind of handicapped a little bit by the fact that it's television. My it, concern is how does it actually affect their review? I mean, are they trying to stretch what would be considered credible evidence just for, you know... Or are they trying to review too quickly and missing because stuff. they have a certain amount of time to get it done in? And missing other valuable things. Yeah. It, it works both ways. It's a double-edged sword. And it's, it's, it's amazing to me the reaction that people had to what was going on. I mean, people saying uh, that they were fired, people saying that it was, you know, they're pretending like it was their choice, but in actuality they wanted to get rid of them. You know, none of that is true. Why would you, first of all, you've got the number one show on sci-fi. Everything's going well. There's no reason to change. Obviously, both brought a great amount of knowledge and a great amount of experience to those investigations. But people don't bat an eye if somebody decides to leave a group. If they're like, you know what? I'm kind of burnt out by this whole thing. I want to just take a break. That's cool. We appreciate that. We understand mm-hmm. that. But because it's a television show, why would you ever want to walk around like you're actually becoming a millionaire or something by being on one of these reality shows? Yeah. In reality, you can make more to nine to five, five days a week than you are it's, on Ghost Hunters. It's probably costing money the time that you're spending away yeah. from home. And uh, so, you know, it's one of the stories there. And, of course, the other part of that story is having Dustin Parry, Joe Chin, Grant Wilson even coming back and being part of Ghost Hunters. At this point, Ghost Hunters being the granddaddy of the current paranormal reality uh, genre, they have to find ways to stay fresh. They have to find ways to keep things interesting from a storytelling aspect as a television show, but also maybe as investigators. You know, they want to kind of switch things up from time mm-hmm. to time. They want to try different things and, and bring together different dynamics. So it's understandable that they want to go back, <clears throat> at least in the short term, go back to some of these folks that they know that they can work well with, and then we'll see where the future goes. See, I think that was done too little too late. I don't have anything against anybody that's coming back, but all of a sudden you find yourself in a predicament where you just lost two cast members and you're trying to fill the void with, oh, let's bring back these people, the favorites, and 
you should have done that throughout the whole entire series because it probably would have captured the audience a little bit better. Well, in, in fairness, and I don't know the ins and outs of it, but in fairness, maybe it was just that you know these folks weren't really interested in coming back, and it became a matter of, hey, we need you. Can you come back? Sure, I'll do it. Just you know, as a favor to you guys. That's possible too. It could have happened, but, but there's going to have to be some sort of change going forward. That's a more permanent solution, right? Than uh, just you know, like a greatest hits of investigators. That's kind of what it was like. In- Which one? When, when's Brian coming back? Oh. And moving on, uh, in a similar vein, and this is a story that probably strikes a little bit closer to home for me. But Nick Roth leaving Ghost Adventures, mm-hmm. and this is something that people are still speculating about. But again, it's the same type of idea. At some point, you have different ideas, not only of investigating, but also of how television is produced. And especially with those Ghost Adventures guys, they are the ones who are producing the show. Mm -hmm. It's not like Ghost Hunters where they're filming it and they're turning it over to somebody else. I mean, these guys are overseeing all aspects of the production of the show. A one-stop shop type of thing. And their vision. And by being their vision, their collective vision... Sometimes some of that vision might change, which is why Nick goes off and starts Ghost Stalkers, a way to kind of put the paranormal out there in a way that he wants people to see it. Right, and that's tough, too, because you have three guys who are doing it themselves, and it's, you know, always them against each other. There's no producer to say, hey, no, we're going to go this way, and you all have to agree. That can be very difficult. You know all those different personalities, all those different views, and everything. So, yeah, with with a show like Ghost Hunters, really, ultimately, it's going to fall in the hands of the people producing the television. Right. Now, Jason Hawes being the executive producer, he can have a voice in that, and maybe he even has veto power. I don't know, but the fact is that you know there there is that production side of things, and and Ghost Ghost Adventures has brought in a lot of production people over the years, but ultimately, you know, it's still. You know, it's, it's, it's Zach and Nick and, yeah. and, and Aaron's names who are on it, and they're the ones who are making the final call. So going off, I mean, I think that's probably one, of, and I'm not just saying this because he's my friend and my boss, but that's one of the bravest things that somebody can do in this yeah. field is to go off and not only leave a show, but to create something that you think is different. And, and people are coming at him and saying, you know, you're trying to compete with Ghost Adventures. And I can tell you, being involved in the process, competition was never on his mind. It's he, a totally different show. And he never saw it as being up against it. He always mm-hmm. saw it as being... And he even said, I have no interest for this to, to run up against Ghost Adventures, whether I'm on it or not. It was mm-hmm. all about being able to have a different perspective on the paranormal, and I think that that happened. Which is fair, because who knows if he had a fair shot at his own perspective on Ghost Adventures or not, because we don't know what happened between all three of them all the time, and who made the executive decision in the end of this is what we're going to do, or this is how we're going to do this, or we're going to show this type of evidence and not that. And that can be, I think, a little bit of a mess at times. And even from a non-television producing standpoint, Mm -hmm. what if it's that those three people... And those five, if you want to include Billy and Jay, and I don't mm-hmm. know whoever else they bring in, but if you have that group of people, certain things might be happening on investigations because of the chemistry, that it, the dynamic, and the energies of those three people. Mm-hmm. So maybe you want to see what happens when you explore the same subject matter with different people, which is what Ghost Stalkers was. It was, let's involve John Tenney, Chad Lindbergh, two guys who have had near-death experiences who have been that close to the other side and see yep. how much of a difference that makes. So it's just another way of looking at it. I liked the concept of Ghost Hunters. I think it was very interesting, and it was probably the most interesting thing that's happened in Paranormal in the past 10 years. Ghost Stalkers, you mean? Ghost Stalkers. I just want to make sure you got that right, since (laughs) since it's essentially a plug for the show that I work on. 
Did I say it wrong? What would you be- did, but I, I know, normally I would never correct you on the air. I had two hours of sleep last night, so correct me all you want. I just want to make sure I get the plug right. That's all. Ghost stalkers. Please say once again that you love ghost stalkers. I love ghost stalkers. Thank you very much. Actually, you were up all night? Yes. You should have came hung out with me. Well, you didn't call, so that's your own fault. I figured you had the little one. She was watching episodes of Ghost Stalkers. I was. No, she wasn't. Because she won't watch it in the stalkers. dark. She won't watch it in the dark. <laughs> I won't. It's true. Well, <laughs> what's interesting about you're talking about the different chemistry now that say um, Ghost Adventures is going to be different because they don't have the same original crew. I'd like to see them go back to places they've been to, see if they get different results because they have. Now it goes along the same lines of what Tim was saying with Ghost Adventures. Yeah, you're bringing new new dynamics, new chemistry, new approaches, new techniques. But you should always go back to the same places anyways because one investigation isn't going to prove anything. Right. Yeah, but, you know, for TV, TV looks at it as, yeah, they've been there, done that. But right. Ghost Adventures has always done a good job of revisiting some of these cases, especially the places where they've had some of their best evidence mm-hmm. and seeing if that is a follow-up. Uh, so there, and uh, speaking of Ghost Stalkers... Moving on to this, and this is not in a self-serving way, but talking about this in terms of what it meant to the paranormal community, and that being that uh, the Ghost Stalkers program captured what might be some of the most convincing paranormal evidence ever, uh, the full-bodied apparition that was caught at the old Taylor Memorial Hospital in Georgia. I mean, this is something that I think that it's starting to pick up steam. I mean, not enough people saw Ghost Stalkers when it aired at right. first. And now they've been putting it out online. They've had some marathons of it on Destination America, and people are starting to catch on. And this is – there were websites that are calling this the piece of paranormal evidence of 2014. Some of them even – this is the piece of evidence for the decade. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's really a compelling piece of evidence. And, and I think that it just shows that maybe – having different approaches could lead to this type of result. I agree. I definitely agree. I think everything that Ghost Stalkers, and I'm not saying it could hear my friend, but everything that Ghost Stalkers captured in their very short season kind of blew every other show out of the water. The rocking chair alone was a little too much for me. <laughs> but the, the apparition, I think, is the thing that really has people buzzing. And Moniz, right. you've seen a lot of these over the years. Oh, yeah. And uh, what they caught, it got my undivided attention. Uh, Mr. Skeptic over there, what do you think of that? And, and don't just butter it up because I'm sitting right across from you. Right? I'm actually trying to bring it up again and watch it. Well, I know that for, uh, for the viewing audience. If you go to Road Trippers, Road Trippers has a whole thing on it uh, too. Which, by the way, if you're not reading Road Trippers, uh, the work of uh, of uh, Greg and Dana Newkirk and on all their friends over there, please go read it. It's fantastic. Uh, but. It, it was pretty interesting as far as uh, footage co- is concerned because it was it had some sort of base to it. it had um, it was wasn't like it was just like a floating mist or it had some sort of it was some, to some it. solidity to it. Yeah, right. So uh, I think that that'll be something that people will keep debating, uh, especially as hopefully Destination America keeps rerunning those and it picks up some steam. We still haven't heard anything about season two, so uh, let's hope that we do. Uh, here's another story that we covered here on the program just a few months ago, and that would be the Velisca Axe Murder House stabbing. Yeah. That mm-hmm. apparently an investigator went into the house and decided to have self-inflicted stab wounds in his chest. And a little bit more came out from the story. We still haven't heard really a lot from it, uh, but a little bit more information came out that apparently he did it at the same time that the murders are believed to have taken place. 
So it seems like, and he hasn't come forward and said yes or no, but it seems like he was trying to really put himself out there on the line for reenactment purposes to see if it gets kind of a rise out of the spirits, which... That's a little extreme. It's okay to kind of go for the reenactment. It's okay to kind of go for, uh, you know, a little bit of recreation of the events. But I think stabbing yourself in the chest is just stupid. I could see, like, you know, a similar murder weapon as a trigger object, but to actually inflict yourself with some sort of bodily harm, not I, worth it. Yeah, I certainly would never do that. And Maybe we haven't heard anything because he's locked up in a padded room somewhere. Well, it seems like, though, that each year as we do these stories in a review, we're hearing more and more stories about irresponsible investigations. Mm -hmm. And I wonder what that speaks to overall. Like burning down places? We've had that. We've had people who have gotten killed on investigations. We've had people who have gotten sick on investigations, put themselves in harm's way way too much. I mean, that stuff happens in everyday life anyways. You're just looking at a smaller group of people and it's oh. going to happen within that group i wonder if we're seeing a lot of that though because it is the desire to stand out from the crowd so you're going to take more risks is it the lack of common sense from some of the people that are involved <laughs> it can be inexperience yeah i mean everybody in the paranormal to a degree i mean there are some people that don't care but the majority of people are looking for their 15 minutes Moniz, you've been involved in this uh, field for a long time, probably at a point when really the only people that were involved in it, uh, for the most part, were folks who, I don't want to say would be beyond reproach, but at least people who had an intelligent approach to it. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> the days of going to the library to research. Yeah, uh, yeah. and when you, you're talking actually going out in the field, yeah, there there were people there because they wanted the answers. They wanted the experience. It wasn't about becoming famous. It was about becoming more informed. And I think they were too quick sometimes to uh, make the correlation between the idiots in the field and becoming famous. I think some of the idiots that are in it are in it for the right reasons. They're just idiots, and they're going about yeah. it the wrong way. So... Uh, it's not like everybody's in it just to get on TV or just to, to make themselves a buck, but I think some of them just don't understand what it is that they're doing and the risk that they're taking uh, on behalf of everybody else. You know, it's kind of like... It's like any other hobby, you know. Golf, give you a good example. You, you got idiots have, that yeah. get out there. That, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Well, you've obviously seen me on the golf course then. <laughs> but, I mean, I mean, look at something like, you know... Uh, it's kind of like some of these paranormal investigators are like, you know, the the... The backroom cage fighting version of the UFC. You know, they're not following the same rules. They're not following the same health procedures. They're giving the rest of the sport a bad name because they're doing it like a bunch of morons. So eye gouging and fish hooking is okay? In the paranormal? I'd like to see that. <laughs> I'd like to see some of these, uh, some of this Brazilian jiu-jitsu applied to investigations. Uh, so that is another one of the big stories. Speaking of uh, big stories in which people are stupid, <laughs> Ryan Buell apparently ripping off a whole bunch of people and then essentially going nuts afterwards. Uh, Didn't he, somebody else do that from some other show? Yeah. Weird. Sounds familiar. Wait, who what? <laughs> somebody previously mentioned within this hour. Oh, yeah, yeah, but that was that didn't happen within this year. No, it's just been going on yeah, for years. Yeah, it's just something that's always happened. Uh, but, yeah, Ryan Buell, of course, uh, he put out a tour, 
and uh, he, he started, you know, he'd been out of the game for a while with pancreatic <laughs> cancer. All of a sudden, he comes back, announces that he's going to be having a tour, and that Chip Coffee is going to be on the tour with him. Then all kinds of shady things are happening with the PayPal involved in paying for the tickets and the venues not being aware of events taking place there. All this stuff happens, and next thing you know, Chip leaves the tour because he doesn't feel comfortable. They bring in Michelle Belanger. She gets involved. She feels like things aren't safe. She leaves. Uh, and the next thing you know, you've got people that are approaching Ryan Buell trying to get refunds for this tour that's not going to happen, and he's making up all these stories about, and I'm assuming he's making them up. I'm, I have no problem accusing him of doing that when he says PayPal is holding up the refunds. PayPal does not hold up refunds. Right. You know, we run a business through PayPal. and They're the safe way to pay. There's n- there's no way that PayPal is holding up the refunds. If somebody wants a refund from PayPal, you just type in that they get a refil- mm-hmm. refund, boom. The only way that that doesn't work is if the money isn't in the account. I was just going to say, you went and you spent the money and you can't put it back in the account. So this has put a huge tarnish on his uh, already sketchy reputation in the say, field. His whole entire story is blown. And the the problem is, is instead of coming out and being straightforward about it and and uh, putting out a mea culpa, he just goes the opposite direction. He starts attacking people online on Facebook, and uh, it's just it's a huge mess that could have been solved. Pretty easily if he just said, you know, we made a mistake. We invested this money in putting on the tour. Now the tour is not going to happen. We need some time to recoup it, Mm -hmm. to pull back some of the investments that we made. You know, there's a way that you can handle it without coming out and attacking people. But I don't know. But apparently he's feeling healthier, so at least there's that. Well, that's a positive. Yes. I wouldn't wish bad on anybody. Uh, Speaking of, uh, we talked about the Ghost Adventures guys earlier, Zach Bagans buying the Portal to Hell house Mm -hmm. uh, in Gary, Indiana. And this is the house where, you know, tons of people have been possessed and they've had all kinds of exorcisms take place. He buys the house for something like $30,000. He's going to make a documentary about it and then decides not to make the documentary anymore because some of the crew members that were going to be working on that were starting to have bad experiences and coming down with illnesses and he felt like it wasn't a good idea to go forward. Now, we always see that some of these supposedly haunted locations go on sale. We always say, oh, if I had money, I would buy that. But it seems like now, more than ever, it's not really such a good idea. Because what are you going to do with it? I was just going to say, he bought a house. $30,000 isn't much. But not to Zach Bagans, no. Right. He spends that on gas for his Lamborghini. I'm sure. But what are you going to do with it? It's just going to sit there. Right. And if you're going to make the documentary, that's one thing. But it's a. It's not like it's a. It's not like it's a Lizzie Borden house where you can turn it into a bed and breakfast. It's not like it's a Houghton Mansion where you can bring people on tours because there's so many rooms. It's a little tiny house in Gary, Indiana, which is not exactly a tourist destination. It's like right. what a single floor cape type of thing. Yeah, and so yeah, it's in, very small. I mean, really, you have it just for the sake of of having it. Mm-hmm. And maybe he planned on opening it up to research later on. I don't know what his plans were beyond the documentary. But uh, can we be serious? Who cares to watch that documentary? I would be interested in seeing. Really? If it yeah. was done right, yeah. But would it be done right? And what would uh, it? Zach be is of? a very entertaining filmmaker. Okay. I will say that. I will, uh, you know, and and it's it might not be the approach that works for everybody, but it certainly does a, a very good job of of keeping you interested and keeping you entertained. 
Now, some people might feel that he's over the top in some of the ways mm-hmm. that he, he investigates as an investigator, but in terms of the eye that he has and the, the drama and the suspense that he can create, I think he would do a perfectly good job of putting out a documentary about it. I just don't know what that would all mean. Right. Like, when you say documentary, I think of, you know, the boring hour-long film of, you know, learning something. What are you going to learn from Zach? Oh, you're not watching the right documentary, son. Good documentary shouldn't be boring. Mm. Well, I know, but you're learning something. You're gaining knowledge from a documentary. And I think that we could kind of see a case study in a house that might be four walls of evil. But... I don't know. I see what she's saying here. You know, having Zach being the narrator versus getting, you know, like a David Attenborough or something. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to get into all that. I don't want to bash Zach too much in, in that regard. I'm not regard. bashing. I'm just saying he's very en- entertaining on his own show. But to throw him into a documentary of just him in well, that that's house how he got over and started, over, actually. I know. But I, I think... I, most people don't care about that. When you're a 13-year-old girl watching Ghost Adventures, you don't care about what he did before. Yeah. I think I'd like to see at least the story told. And if right. he's not going to tell it, at least have somebody else uh, come in and tell it, because I think people want to hear more about it. Uh, some of the other stories that have come out, and we're going to try and get through as many of these as we can, but we have uh, a few here that are not... I'm just reading through some of this stuff real quickly. Uh, let's make sure that we get them all in there, at least the, the key ones. We had a couple of key sightings, and we'll lump these all together over the course of the year, some footage that came out. Uh, one being a uh, the Elacoya Country Store in Guilford, New Hampshire, capturing that footage of the glass tray flying mm-hmm. across the store, that happening on surveillance footage. And then we had the New Mexico Police Department there that uh, caught an apparition on camera, a supposed apposition, uh, apparition on camera. And then we have the Houston UFO sighting, which if you remember talking about that, that was the one where somebody was driving in the car. Yeah. And they held the camera mm-hmm. along as they were seeing it. So we've gotten three pieces of evidence that caught a lot of attention this year, but nothing really that is uh, – none of those really had legs. Right. You know, it was kind of like one of those quick stories that had happened, and then people moved on from it. Several Bigfoot uh, films that people took, you know, a number of different things. But you're right. They're all small. And it seems like nothing is really stuck. Like there's yeah. not going to be uh, – yeah, it's not like it's convinced anybody. I don't think it ever will. No. Somebody somewhere will always say it was faked, it happened this way. It all goes back to what are your beliefs. Right. If it's too close and too mm-hmm. detailed, it's got to be fake. If it's, you know, in the distance, oh, it's, there's not enough information. I, you can't. Most people say. believe that seeing is believing, and they have to be there to witness it themselves. And some people that are even standing there witnessing something can still say, "No, that didn't happen." So you're never going to get anywhere with that, and that's why we all sit around and continue to research. Yep. It, it bothers me though that too often the news media throws these stories out there, like, "Hey, everybody, a country store in New Hampshire says they caught a ghost." Mm-hmm. And we'll show you the footage tonight at 11. But there's never any follow-up. Right. You know, there's never any investigation done on the part of the news reporter or any follow-up with any groups that may investigate. Now, that country store, when it happened, I put in a phone call. Mm-hmm. I never heard back from the owner. Well, I did hear back from the owner, but then I returned his call and I never heard back again. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if they just decided not to 
go forward with any more publicity for it. I don't know if somebody came in and was able to debunk what happened. I don't know if they just decided they want to get away from it and away from the spotlight. I don't know what happened there. Uh, but more often than not, that's what happens is they put out this footage and everybody descends upon those places. All the paranormal groups suddenly want to be the ones to get in there. Right. And it spooks off the people that caught this evidence Maybe. that really weren't looking for it. Maybe it was bad for business. Mm, that's quite possible. Because as much as you think that that would draw business, you're going to draw it from a different crowd where your regular crowd might say, oh, I don't want to go in there anymore. Or they're crazy. They believe in ghosts. In the time that we have left, we only have about five minutes. I will hot shot some of these real quickly. Uh, FLIR giving us a thermal imaging attachment for the iPhone. Great idea. Mm-hmm. Only costs 300 bucks. It's a lot cheaper than going out and buying a thermal imaging camera from FLIR. Uh, on the downside, they only made it for the iPhone 5, and they released it like just a couple of months before the iPhone 6 came out. And very it's true. very limited in range. A part of that is you're probably dealing with the limitations of the cell phone itself, too. Uh, but I've, I've noticed now, it, just as an aside, that Kodak is now getting involved in producing lenses for cell yeah. phones. And so I think that as that technology furthers, that maybe we can kind of further some of the, both the night vision and thermal capabilities of them as well. Because, you know, people will not go out and buy a new digital camera anymore. Because the cell phone cameras are always way ahead of what you can buy in the store. It's true. I mean, think about where were cell phones 10 years ago. Can you imagine where they're going to be in another 10 years? Yeah. I mean, I'm, my, the last camera that I bought in the store was 14 megapixels. My cell phone camera is 16. Oh really? So I'm going to stick with my camera, my cell phone yeah. camera. You know, it's uh, and it has just as much functionality, uh, if not more. Uh, a couple other real stories, real quick. Uh, Rick Dyer, guy's got to come in the news uh, at some point. Uh, Stephanie, if you're not familiar, he is the Bigfoot hoaxer okay. from a few years ago, the Bigfoot in the freezer. Rick Dyer oh, was the okay. uh, quote unquote genius behind that hoax, uh, and he's also come back uh, in a few times with other ones as well. Texas. The beginning of this year, he claimed that he shot one in Texas last year, and he's going to take it on tour. The tour ended up getting canceled. He came comes clean and says that the whole idea of shooting the Bigfoot in Texas was a hoax, but that from now on, he's only going to speak the truth, and that he's not going to cause any more hoaxes. And then what happens? A few days before Christmas, he comes out trying to perpetrate another hoax, where now they have a Bigfoot body tied to a tree. Upside down, upside by down. the way. So... That's the only way to catch a Bigfoot is upside down, right? Absolutely. So at, at this point, can we just pretty much say that whenever it comes from Rick Dyer, we're just not going to pay any attention anymore? Just like the boy who cried wolf? Well, in this case, the boy who cried Bigfoot right. every single year. Uh, but Lauren Coleman, you know, for example, he's already turned his back. He's not going to give this guy any more ink, any more publicity. I feel like that's probably what the rest of the Bigfoot community should do, and a lot of them have. I mean, a lot of them have said, you know, he's just that embarrassing uncle that nobody wants to talk about. And they put him in the same camp as Tom Biscardi. Although, you could say to some degree that Tom Biscardi has still helped to further research by people trying to prove him wrong. <laughs> but at least he's at least he's further the research. Rick Dyer is just a, a hoaxer out to try to make a buck. And people still keep giving him that buck. Stop it. Uh, and and uh, making a buck, of course. We had the discussion in the summertime about Prettiest Paranormal, the former Playboy Playmates that came out and were going to start their own paranormal group. Anybody heard anything from them no. recently? Yeah, me either. And I've been following them all on Twitter, and I haven't seen much about yeah, that too. at all. Not a thing. guess they couldn't raise enough money. So, yeah, pretty interesting. Uh, and any other just topics? I have a few other ones that we're not going to get to, but anything else that's popping out in your minds is like a big standout story of 2014. I think you covered the major ones. Yeah. 
Well, except for Stephanie Burke joining Spooky South Coast on a permanent well, basis. That was the best one. Yeah, that was like headline news, though. Nobody missed out on that. Matt, any no. stories that you can think of? Uh, nothing I can think of. I mean, some of the other ones were, you know, like Ralph Sarchi's story finally making it to the screen and deliver us from evil. Uh, the mother who was found not guilty by, I think, by reason of insanity on Nantucket for killing her daughter in an exorcism attempt in mm. 2011. Uh, these are some of the things that we didn't get to cover. Uh, Josh Mantello, Berkshire Paranormal Group, no longer being the house team of the Houghton Mansion. And, you know, and just kind of what does that mean? Because they were one of the original house teams yeah. of a haunted location. Uh, so some other topics we didn't get to, but certainly if you have any that you would like to discuss with us, you can email us about them. Spooky crew at SpookySouthCoast.com. Uh, you can also tweet them to us at SpookySC. We have about a minute left. Stephanie, I know that you've already booked the guest for next week, right? I have. Next week we have my very good friend Lynn Marie, who is the owner of Uplifting Connections in Bridgewater. She's a spirit medium and tarot card reader, and she's going to come on and discuss a whole bunch of different topics and possibly take some readings. Excellent. So it is it. It's tarot with her. I don't have to start convincing myself to say tarot. Um, actually, you can ask her that. I just say tarot. Okay, I do too. Actually, you know what? Matt Costa might know how she says it. Matt, how does she say it? I think it's tarot. Really? Tarot. I don't know. I have no idea. I actually heard somebody call it tarot too. I would say tarot. Somebody somebody said tarot. Some people say tarot. Some people say tarot. Yeah, potato. I want to go. I want to keep tarot. going with what works for me. Potato, potato. <laughs> potato might be that might be the first time I've ever heard potato. Leave it to you. But that does it for this week's show. So until next week, from Matt Costa, from Matt Moniz, for Stephanie Burke, I'm Tim Weisberg. We want you all to stay spooktacular, and we will talk to you next year. <laughs> <laughs>